Welcome to Long Live Bat Art, the podcast for art lovers who don't see art as much as they want to. My name is Sydney, and thank you for taking this slow tour through an art gallery with a casual art lover. Today, I'll be talking about St. John in the Wilderness by Hieronymus Bosch. I hope you enjoy. Hieronymus Bosch is actually a pseudonym for Geronimus von Aachen, but I'll continue to call him Bosch. He was born around 1450 in the town of Hertogenbosch, which is probably where he got his pseudonym, in Brabant, now part of the Netherlands. His grandfather, Johannes Thomasun von Aachen, or maybe Jan von Aachen, was also a painter who had five sons, four of which became painters as well. Because of Johannes' career, his children and grandchildren had lives that were fairly comfortable. Bosch's father, Antonius, was a painter who acted as an artistic advisor for the illustrious Brotherhood of Our Blessed Lady, which was a volunteer group that promoted the veneration of the Virgin Mary, Mother of God. In 1486 or 1487, Bosch himself joined the Brotherhood, where he did some of his earliest commissions, but sadly none survive. It's logical that either Bosch's father or uncles taught him to paint, but unfortunately it's unclear because none of his family's works lasted to the present. Bosch was a pessimist and strict moralist. Most of his paintings reflect both that and his general misanthropy and distrust of the nature of humanity. Most of his works also had a moral attached to them, but most of the precise messages have been lost because of time and the changing of morals and images throughout time. Nowadays, He's been lauded as having deep insight into humanity's desires and fears that were shown in his work. While that may be true, negativity isn't the only reason to make art or the lens through which to see it. Positivity can have depth too, sometimes more than negative. Between 1479 and 1481, Bosch married his wife Alit Goyot van den Meerveen. Bosch gained social status and more wealth because of the marriage. It was after this that Bosch had enough capital to start a workshop. Critics of his time thought he must have been involved with the occult, but researchers now just think he was one of the first to use abstraction to represent ideas. In fact, researchers have tended to disagree vehemently about the thought process behind Bosch's work over the centuries. Some say that his work is typical of the conservatism of the time, some say that the work was created only to amuse the audience. Some say he created monstrous forms just for the hell of it. Whatever camp of interpretation you fall under, there's one thing that's clear. Bosch has survived in the art world for a reason. And that reason is debate. In addition to his other works, Bosch also did altarpieces and designed stained glass. But art historians have been able to track his evolution as an artist fairly successfully. As one might expect, his works when he was a beginner show a hesitancy and awkwardness that gets less and less pronounced as he worked. His style also cemented itself as he developed. His work has been split into three categories, early, middle, and late period. It was apparently popular at the time to imitate his style and or subject matter as I detailed last episode with Peter Bruegel the Elder, who was one of his most loyal and well-known followers. But because his style was so unique, few were successful in reproducing it exactly. Unlike most Flemish painters of the time, Bosch sometimes didn't hide his brushstrokes. Instead, he showcased them with a sketchy style. Unusual during most artists' lifetimes, 
Bosch was fairly renowned. His work was collected in the Netherlands, Austria, and Spain. His depictions of hell were especially popular. While around 40 artworks have been attributed to Bosch, he signed only 7 and dated none of them. Most of his works are on wood panels and oil paint, and most of his more famous ones are triptychs, which are pieces of work on wood that have been joined together with hinges and can be folded up as needed. Bosch died in 1516. After his death in the late 1500s, Philip II of Spain actually got his hands on most of Bosch's painting. And as one might expect from looking at the imagery in his work, the surrealists in the 1920s, including Dali, drew inspiration from and otherwise admired his work. Now for those of you not well versed in the Bible, you might be confused as to why a man would choose to live in the wilderness. St. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness for the same reason monks lived in monasteries and nuns in convents away from everyone else. St. John believed that civilization is where sin is plentiful, and the wilderness is where you should go to connect with God. St. John believed, as people have throughout history, that to commune with God, you should be alone. Now, on to the painting. The painting is realistic with surrealist or abstracted elements. St. John is lying on the ground behind a surrealist plant. The lower half of his body is lying on the grassy ground with his torso, arms, and head resting on an raised area. It looks like a mini grassy cliff or maybe a natural altar. St. John is wearing a loose faded red clothing item, the cloth pulled around him with a single foot exposed. The folds are geometric but shaded. St. John himself has a long scraggly brown beard and hair of the same texture and color. His left elbow is against that natural order and he's supporting his head on that hand. He looks morose. He's trailing the forefinger of his right hand along the natural altar like he's drawing something. The surrealist plant that I mentioned that's in front of St. John, it's green with a wide stem at the bottom that tapers as it goes upwards. The single fruit is large and round and white in color. It looks like marble. It has blue-toned veins running through it. There's a small bird that's perched on part of the plant and eating the seeds. The plant's leaves are large and flat. The stem that leads to the fruit or flower is curved and thorny with the exception of the part the bird is perched on. Quite convenient. There's a fallen fruit that's on the altar, its pod facing away from St. John with its seeds spilling out. The top of the plant above the round fruit is thinner with a flat disc growing around it. Imagine a straw sticking out of the hole of a cup's top. At the top, the stem splits into two. The right fork has a smaller gray fruit with white speckles and a black bird perched on it. Not a crow or raven, it's very small. The left fork ends in a sharp bend that tapers into a soft curve. What looks like pink leaves or maybe a large upside down butterfly is hanging from the curve. The front of the altar has exposed dirt with white roots coming out. There's a lamb laying in front of it, its legs folded underneath itself. The trees to the right of the image, they have straight and skinny trunks with the leaves suggested by dark green highlighted at the tips with a lighter shade. As they recede into the distance, they get more yellow and less green. There are several animals in the yellowing grass in the distance, a few antelope, a boar, and a couple of bears, one scratching its back against a tree. The mountains in the background are blue-toned and rounded. 
The mountain slightly closer is again surreal. It's pale, and I can see what looks like a rabbit on its hind legs in the face hugging another figure. But I can't quite figure out what I think the second one is. More trees in the same style at the top of Rabbit Mountain. To the right, just behind the dark green trees, is the large dead tree. It has a large bulb on the right side of it, like a massive wasp's nest. Birds are flying behind the tree in a line, not a V. Now for my thoughts. I never really quote unquote got surrealism or abstract art. Mixed with realism, it's even odder. But I like it in this case. Mixes the mundane with the strange. And the trees are a mix of realistic and a touch of abstraction because leaves don't look like that. As I mentioned, St. John looks morose. Or maybe he's just bored. Who knows? I know I would be if I lived alone with no one around to talk to or connect with. As far as the religious aspect of the painting, I feel a strong connection with it. I don't live in the wilderness, as you might expect because I run a podcast, and I don't eat locusts or wear animal fur, but I do believe faith should be private. That's not saying you shouldn't tell people what you believe, but I mean that you shouldn't try to shove religion down anyone's throat. I don't believe in missionary trips, I don't believe in going door to door and telling people about your God, or TV preaching where you ask for donations. I remember seeing some TV show or movie or other thing and a character saying to another that he quote, prays too loud, unquote. And I really do believe that one can do that. There are people that only believe in their God in theory and don't fully understand the teachings. I can only speak for Roman Catholics because that's the religion I know the best, but even Catholics can learn a few things from the person they claim to know so well. There are Catholics who say that God hates this group or that group, but that's the opposite of what God stands for. You can go and look through the entire Bible, but you won't find any instance of God or Jesus saying, I don't like these people and they should be damned. And if you go and quote Leviticus at me, don't bother. The Bible has been translated and changed through the thousands of years by people who had their own agenda. Books have been added, books have been left out. Words that used to mean so much have been translated beyond understanding. There are whole concepts that don't apply anymore. And just to add, Leviticus also forbids wearing more than one kind of fabric, and I don't see any Catholic advocating for the damnation of anyone wearing a nice cotton blend. The main point of Jesus is that he loved, and not just anyone, but everyone. The man hung out with lepers, prostitutes, and tax collectors the people on the fringes of society, the ones that were hated in their time. Now, I'm not extremely religious, but I do believe in God. I don't go to any particular place of worship regularly, though I might stop in from time to time. My faith is quiet and private, and I don't pray the way people tend to, with flowery or carefully recited words, but I do pray. And that act, that distinctly human act, brings me comfort. And me saying that isn't to bash atheists or people who don't believe in much of anything. Quite the opposite. My thinking is that those people might be the best kind because there's no belief in any rewards for their doing good. There's no grand prize of an afterlife of happiness. They're just humans helping humans. Because they can. Because they want to. And that's a pretty good way to live. I'm going to challenge you. Help one other person today. You don't have to solve world hunger or bring about world peace. One person. 
It could be your neighbor you don't talk to besides to exchange hellos. Offer to set out their garbage cans for them next time. It could be your elderly family member. Ask to get together soon and just talk over a cup of coffee. Get at least one of their stories. It could be a complete stranger. It could be as simple as holding the door open for someone with a stroller or a lot of bags. It could be just paying someone a compliment. Someone that there's one feature that you know gets most of the attention in a negative way, like crooked eyes or buck teeth. Compliment something else about them. Help just one person. Because if everyone just forgets that they believe in a higher power and instead takes it upon themselves to help at least one other person, then maybe we will solve world hunger or get world peace. Because little kindnesses are never little to the person who's having it done for them. Maybe it's been a really bad week for them and you gave them a nice surprise. Maybe they'll then turn around and help someone else to share that fortune. Because that's what kindness is, a fortune. It costs almost nothing and means everything. If you like this episode of Long Live Bat Art, please consider telling a friend and reviewing to help the podcast grow. A link to the transcript of this episode is available in the show notes below. And you can follow me on Twitter at Long Live Bat Art and Tumblr at tumblr.com forward slash Long Live Bat Art. That's Long Live B-A-T Art. Thank you for listening to this episode and I'll see you in two weeks.